All right, gentlemen. Good to see y'all. I uh, I think Matt's still emailing out the uh, weekly reading privileges. Is that right, Phil? And uh, memorization and all that good stuff if you care to partake. Um, let's go to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1. And as you're turning there, uh, I think Pastor Matt, Pastor Matt's sick today, um, but he, I think he did or will be or somebody emailing out something about Shepherd's Conference for those of you who are going uh, for, for lodging. A couple of us will uh, tent up at uh, the, Colson, the Colson compound there up in Canyon Country or wherever it is. And then I think most of us are getting hotels. Did Matt email something out about that? Okay. When when did that go, email go out? Okay, great. Yeah, I think we're kind of getting, if you so choose, there's like two hotels right next to each other. Conveniently, about a 28-second walk from In-N-Out. Um, but there's two different hotels, right? You know, you know the In-N-Out. Uh, yeah, I know you do. <laughs> we were past there that one year. <laughs> they knew us by our nicknames. Uh, uh, but there's a couple of hotels right in the vicinity and i would just encourage you to do that sooner than later um, it's filling up um the hyatt is already full we usually get rooms there but that's full um so if you need you know financial assistance for housing uh talk to matt about that there's scholarships available and i think overflow registration also is still open uh can someone verify that for me okay as of yesterday so if you still want to go to shepherd's conference you know, kind of the the dudes dudes Disneyland, you know, Christian dudes Disneyland. Uh, it, you'll not be the worse for it. Uh, you'll be the better for it. I assure you. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. So, um, who's all going so far? If you wouldn't mind. All right, Richard's money be going. All right. Well, if you're on the fence, uh, reach your hand down, and we'll pull you off. And uh, it, it'll, it'll be it'll be worth a while so and again there are scholarships available all right um my, there it is first timothy one well uh first timothy second timothy and titus as you brothers know are uh, considered the the pastorals um also uh, rightly called the the leadership manuals of the new testament so if you want to dig into something um, you know get a good uh, a good dousing and dose of leadership from the scriptures first timothy second timothy titus excellent books first timothy one paul an apostle of christ jesus according to the commandment of our savior and of christ jesus who is our hope to timothy my true child in the faith the grace Mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ the Lord. Upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. Mention the myths and endless genealogies to give rise to your speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart 
and a good conscience and a sincere For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law. Now they don't understand either what they're saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I, was, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, that keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We need it as much and even more than we need food. We thank you and just throw anchor that Christ Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We would have gone nuts if we didn't have that assurance of the reign of Jesus Christ as the son of David and of his forgiveness of sins and eternal life and that nothing can separate us from him. Father, we praise you. And this morning we just rest. Oh Lord, all the things that are nipping at our heels today and the many the difficulties that these brothers carry and the battles they fight as they fight the good fight, each one of them whom you love. And, and Lord, you're out for their good, and we thank you for that. And I just pray you would uphold us this morning as we uh, enjoy breakfast, cup of coffee here as uh, brothers, the fraternity, that we would be encouraged by your word in this delicate and difficult subject of masculinity and marriage and shepherding the rebellious wife, Father. Let only things be said that are conforming to your word, helpful for the upbuilding of the saints. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, gentlemen, we are, uh, there should be a new set of notes this morning. Um, are there notes going around over here? Yep. Okay. Um, any, any of you brothers need some here? A couple of guys here in the hallway need some. Um, JB, maybe, or uh, Tyler, if you wouldn't mind passing them on. Thanks, guys. There are a, a number of seats here. You'll have to get cozy. Um, so we're considering the topic of masculinity from the Word of God, God's call for men. Uh, you may have heard... Um, theologian and religious leader James Cameron the other day, uh, creator of Avatar, uh, said that, said, quote, I always, an interesting quote, uh, and his movies uh, show it, I always think of testosterone as a toxin 
that you have to slowly work out of your system, end quote. Um, so in other words, uh, you need to drain men, um, young men and old men and all men, drain men and, you know, kind of pop their masculine bubble, as it were, of the God-created stuff, which are good God, who in Genesis 131, after he looks around, having created men and women, and says it's very good. You have to drain them of the, of the stuff, in part, that, that God thought of and concocted uh, to, to uh, fuel, in part, masculinity. Um, and so that's sort, of the, uh, that's sort of the stuff we're up against in our culture. This is no secret to you, brothers. Um, the, the stripping of men of masculinity. And as you do that, that's, that's obviously unloving to men, defaming of the image of God. It's also defaming of the gospel because, uh, as we know, we'll look at and talk about this morning, the gospel is to be reflected in masculinity and marriage. The man being head of the woman as Christ is of the church, Ephesians 5, 22 to 25. So this is attack on God, on Christ, on men, on the gospel. And of course, it's from Satan. Um, so this is in part why we are studying the issue. First Corinthians 16, uh, 13 encourages us to be on the alert, like what's going on around you, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Be strong. Um, so this is uh, a, a, a small attempt in our study this year uh, to do that. You lose the men, you lose the culture. Uh, it's a great, a great damage to children as well and the next generation. As I, I was listening to a um, to some news yesterday, and I heard a stat. It's hard to believe. I mean, it's not, but it is. I guess because I don't observe as much. But that one in four children, one in four children, elementary age plus or minus, quote, identifies as transgender. Uh, so this is uh, utterly abusive. This is this this demasculating of, of men. It's, a, it's an abuse and it's a catastrophic damage uh, to the culture. So we're, we, we need to be on the alert and stand firm in the faith against these things. It is for the good of culture, men, women, children, that we retain God's roles, which he created, which we thoroughly have studied, Genesis 1, 2, and on. So as we're studying uh, masculinity, um, just a reminder too, just a few introductory reminders here. God's call for men covers all areas of life. Um, you know, th there's no, you're not more or less masculine necessarily like on your job or, or a hobby or something like that. A man is fulfilling his noble call for masculinity. If, you know, whatever he does, if he's a, as long as it doesn't require sin, if he's a garbage man, uh, if he's a, a computer programmer, uh, a, a missionary, Whatever he does, pastor, you know, a, a professional athlete. When God made Adam in the garden, what's Adam's job? Adam's not a missionary. He's a, he's a gardener. You know, he's a guy. When God called it all very good, that's what he's doing. And he fulfilled his mission and keeping and nourishing, cultivating the garden to take the raw materials of what God made in the world and do something God glorifying with them. Take those raw materials. No, they're not for the deer. They're not to stay in the ground. Get them out of there and prosper the human race. Use them to bless God in whatever you do um, and to, and to uh, use them for human flourishing. 
So Adam was clipping, pruning, picking, digging, you know, trimming, gathering, uh, sweating. This is, this is the first man in his work. To be fruitful, to multiply, so to subdue, subdue creation, rule over it. And so this is, this is masculine. This is what we're called to do. Um, we've looked at masculinity in the cross, masculinity in the fear of God. We looked at masculinity in embracing discomfort, uh, a critical thing that is, that is forsook, uh, that, uh, you know, is forsook at the university level big time. If there's some view that you're uncomfortable with and, you know, and on and on and on. And so, Christmas looking at masculinity and marriage. Masculinity and marriage. We looked at God's design in marriage, uh, why he did it, how he did it, that it is God's design. Uh, and, then, and then we looked at the, the, the role of the men, the role of a, a, a husband. What are the, what's the threefold, threefold role that scripture teaches is the role of a husband in marriage? JB. What's that one, gentlemen? Yeah, leader. So God has said in his word, in uh, number one, that uh, the role of a masculine husband is he's to love his wife, Ephesians 5, 25. He's to lead her. Uh, and this headship doesn't come from Ephesians, though it certainly is stated there, but it's seen in Genesis, um, Ephesians 5, 22 to, to 24. And... Uh, He's to be a learner. He's to learn about his wife. He's to be a wifeologist. Insert your wife. Anthropologist, 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 malleologist, whatever it might be. Um, so these are our roles in embracing masculinity. Of course, with the onset of uh, not so much the onset, but the resurrection of um, the the feminist agenda. Uh, you know, Archie Bunker, Al Bundy, and Homer Simpson. Uh, men are, and husbands are portrayed as the idiots, the fools of culture. The doofuses sit there and are scared of their wives and intimidated by them and their fits and the wife rules the roost. And, you know, things like she's the boss and I got to ask her permission and all that is dishonoring to God because the man is to lead as he loves and learns about her, not in this like uh, tyrannical, you know, dictatorship type way uh, where he's a totalitarian, but nevertheless, he is to lead. He is to lead. She's not the boss. And we shouldn't say that. Well, I got to check with the boss. We shouldn't use that terminology because it's kind of playing into uh, this, this, this dishonoring slide in the feminization of culture, which is dishonoring to God. So we keep these roles. And remember, this isn't just about, I'm the man or whatever, um, but you are. But this is also about the gospel. As 1 Corinthians 11 says, that God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man, and, and every man, the man is the head of the woman. And so that, that role is reflected in marriage. And then the gospel, as Christ is the head of the church, and as the church submits to and loves and comes under the headship of Christ, this is to be reflected in marriage. And so th this is a full issue, that the man leads his home by the grace of God, and it requires the grace of God every second. So this is more of the, the gospel and the, and, and the uh, function of the Trinity is at stake here. Few reasons among others why it's important. Okay, then, then last week, 
we studied uh, how the curse has uniquely hit women. Okay, the curse has hit men and women differently. And we saw in Genesis, let's go to, let's go to Genesis 3.16 real quick if you would. Genesis, Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7. So in Genesis 3.15-ish and on, God is talking about the consequences of, of rebelling against him and the curse, Genesis 3.16. Um, and that last phrase there, uh, Brother Todd, the last phrase of 16, will you read that for us? Your, your desire will be for your husband. And some have said, well, that means she's really going to like want her husband and have this great romantic desire for him. No, this is the context of the curse. This is a bad thing, right? The context here is the curse. So we looked and saw in, uh, that that word desire, go over to 4-7. Um, and Brett, would you read uh, Genesis 4-7 for us? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Yeah. So that, that word desire there, it's the, and Genesis 4-7 is the same one in 3-16, and do you think that when God's talking to Cain there, he's saying that sin really desires to be your friend and romanticize you and come under you? Is that what it's saying? No way. So that Hebrew word there, desire, notes last week, I think it might be in today's as well, means to dominate, rule over, have this combative control. This contentious, you will not tell me, is the idea. So that's the way in which women, as we looked at detail, as we looked at the modern woman, the Proverbs 21 woman, that the curse turns the Proverbs 31 woman into the Proverbs 21 woman. And the modern woman now seeks to, to like take this and I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna live this out instead of and crucify it. And so that helps us to think about what's going on in marriage. Now go to Esther chapter one, a little test case here. Esther chapter one. We gotta look in detail. Is this, did I break it? Sorry, Jenna. Um, I don't I got some, no, I don't think so. So anyway, we looked at detail last week at how, you know, this, this does damage to, to the women. And we also looked at for the wife, that her role also is to love her husband, Titus two, four to five, to submit to him, Ephesians five. 22 to 24, and to respect. Ephesians 5, 33, the Greek word actually means to fear. Uh, to have this deep, deep respect for her husband. Uh, a reverence for her husband. Not a worship, like not like she's worshiping him, but the, the, that's what the word means. And so for Bible-believing, that's what we're going to take it as. That's her role. This, the curse, flips and wants to undo all of this. Okay, hence the feminist movement and just normal, everyday squabbles that uh, most marriages have. Esther chapter 1. This is an interesting test case. It's uh, very provocative. Esther, Esther chapter 1, verse 10. So this is post-exilic. The Jews are scattered. They've been just kind of slingshotted out of Jerusalem everywhere in the east. And this is maybe, you know, 5th century BC. On the seventh day, uh, when the heart, verse 10, when the heart of the king, this is King Ahasuerus of uh, Media Persia, 
was merry with wine. He commanded Mahuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, Carcass, whatever it is, I can't pronounce them, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. Um, then the, the, the king, so now King Ahasuerus, he's having this huge feast in Persia. Maybe not 100% righteous as requested. So um, I don't think it was, some commentators say, oh, he wanted her to like come dance naked or something. That's not it. Just her crown, you know, to see her beauty come before with her, with her gown, her royal uh, queenish garb, whatever it was. Not, probably not 100% righteous. Nevertheless, she refuses. Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, notice what the writer of Esther, under the inspiration of the spirit, says about these wise men. They understood the times. They are wise men, for it was the custom of the king to speak before all who knew law and justice. So these aren't like wicked men. These are wise men who understood the times and were close to him. Those are their names, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. Um, so, verse 15, uh, according to law, he asks them, these seven guys, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? So they're chit-chatting about this. What, what should we do? This is, this is in front of the, the, the princes. Words are going to spread fast. Verse 16. In the presence of the king and the princes, Memukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So notice Vashti has committed a threefold infraction. infraction. She's not only dis greatly disrespected the king, also all the other, the, the, the royalty, the, his, his chief of staff, his administration, the leadership of the, the kingdom. And it says, she's also wronged all the people in the provinces. And there are 127 provinces. How has she wronged? Obviously, it's pretty clear how she wronged the king, but how has she wronged the princes and all the people in the provinces? Well, it says, look at verse 17. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. Interesting. Men who understood the times, men of wisdom who knew law and justice. So we're not told that the, that the wise men of Persia are reading, they had the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament was in existence by then and circulating. Nevertheless, what do these wise men, seven of them, what do they observe about Vashti's behavior? And obviously from the text, they say this is going to cause like a widespread feminist movement in the kingdom where you have it, where it's like an acceptable thing for wives now to disrespect, dominate, and hold their husbands in contempt. What do these wise men 
know about Genesis 3.16, what, what do they know about the tendency of the way sin has affected women in light of their counsel? Yeah. Yeah, good. Spot on, right? Um, it's just a principle of life. The leadership, you know, so goes the leadership usually, okay, usually, so go the people. And when the queen and everyone's like, oh, look what she did, right? It's going to give credence and bolden a role model where this seed, the seed of this is in the heart of every woman. I mean, God states it to the T in Genesis 3.16. The way every woman is cursed is that when she gets a husband, she will want to combatively control dominate rule over and not embrace what is the zenith of dignified mature femininity which is right here love him submit to him and revere him and so these dudes see okay this is gonna this is gonna end poorly right everybody follow that any other thoughts on that any other comments Yeah, great observation. And I think Solomon picks up on that in Ecclesiastes when, I think it's Ecclesiastes 8 or 8, 10 or 8, 11. He says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, the hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. Uh, I think Ecclesiastes 8, 10, or it's either 8, 10 or 11, somewhere in there. Yeah, thank you, Jed, very helpful. So this is why this has to be dealt with. Yeah, and that, like, this, this applies to all society, right? Oh, people can get away with smashing and grabbing, you know, down on Hate Street or whatever in Santa Rosa. Cool. <laughs> you know, this is, this is going to take off and unravel quickly, you know? Oh, the, 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 the penalty against uh, carjacking has been lowered, you know, in the D.C. metropolis. Cool, <laughs> you know? That's not going to suppress the curse that's in us. It's going to let it unravel even more. And the wise men recognize that, particularly as it pertains to wives, and, and for the good, for the love of households, to, to have husbands and wives, you know, bracing their roles, and to have, insofar so, in so, in so as possible, with imperfect people under a roof, have harmony in a home which is the best for children in the next generation. Harmonious marriage where the husband, by God's grace, fulfills his role, the wife, by God's grace, hers. And it's like, no, we're, we're going to deal with this so that we have peace in the home and therefore peace in culture and beyond and orderliness. So these guys, maybe they're reading Ecclesiastes or they're just wise. They, verse uh, 19, 
the king, let a royal edict be issued of Persia and Media, so that it cannot that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of Kerberos, and let the king give her a royal her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. And who is that? Esther, right? Whom, whom God uses to stop a you know a, an ancient Holocaust, basically. When the king's edict, which he will make, verse twenty is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women, notice the end of verse 20, all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because it's how God commands that it is supposed to be. And we saw that even in, you know, well, this applies to all, in First Peter 3, 1 to 2, <clears throat> I, uh, I mentioned last week how there's a movement in the Reformed world right now and, and in PCA churches. Um, uh, an individual by the name of Darby Strickland, a woman who is, has this kind of new modern way of counseling where a husband is considered like, it's considered like spiritual abuse and emotional abuse if he asks his wife to be intimate with him when she doesn't feel like it. And many other examples like that. And he's considered abusive. And this is then, this then qualifies in 1 Corinthians 7.15, where Paul says under cases of abandonment, divorce can happen, where this is now, in some cases, not all, being considered a form of abandonment to spiritual abuse, where she can then separate from her husband. This is garbage. This is garbage, brothers. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2 says, if a husband is disobedient to the word, that her, his wife is to do what? Win him over without a word. This doesn't let him off the hook. You know, he needs to stay accountable to other guys and God will deal with him. But this is what the Bible says. He needs to be won over without a word with her gentle and quiet spirit. So these new modern movements, you know, this new counseling where everything is abuse, this is just taking the tendency of the, of the modern woman and, and allowing this stuff to flourish. It's garbage. It's dishonoring to God and it's dishonoring to what marriage is to reflect the design of the Trinity and the design of the gospel. Okay? All right. Um, so the curse on the female gender in your notes there manifests itself. A fallen desire to resist God's ordained roles for husband and wife, particularly helping excuse me, rebelling against God's command to function as a helper suitable. Genesis 2.18, who submits to the husband's leadership from the heart in gentleness, respect, and humility as unto the Lord. To, to manufacture and to not manufacture, to manufacture a mission independent of the husband rather than conforming her mission to his, again, as a helper suitable. Remember, Adam is given a mission, subdue creation, and Eve is not given a mission independent of his. Very important note. Eve is not, well, here's your mission. You go, you know, to the ocean and you subdue the ocean and an Adam will subdue, you know, the ground. No, he's giving a mission, subdue the earth, exercise dominion over it, care, care for this garden, fill and multiply, subdue the earth. And Eve is told your mission is to be his helper suitable, which carries into marriage. Okay. All right. 
So the modern woman is the photo negative of a dignified, mature, humble woman in Scripture. The Proverbs 31 woman degrades to the Proverbs 21 woman. Instead of a tender, humble desire to respect her husband, she's competitive and disrespectful. Instead of seeking to demonstrate humble, willing, unified submission to her husband as unto the Lord, she tends towards contention, opposition, and playing the devil's advocate, and on and on and on. All this to observe the unique way in which the curse affects women and wives so that we husbands would be better equipped to love them, to shepherd them, to lead them. Okay, again, see last week's, we covered this in detail. So, um, we talked about that. This is attacking the Trinity, uh, the gospel. Um, letter B, now considerations. Okay, we know all that, great. Considerations for responding to a, a rebellious wife who tends more towards the modern woman. What are just a couple of thoughts? Certainly, you brothers could add, add. You brothers could add to this. Certainly, more could be said about this. A couple considerations: How do we shepherd if if a husband finds that his wife tends towards being the modern woman, the Proverbs twenty-one woman who is rebellious? Thoughts on shepherding her, on dealing with that. Um, little uh, Roman numeral one there, in no particular order. He must regularly pray for his rebellious wife. We understand we can't, we can't produce the greatest change necessary in our wives, our children, salvation and sanctification. So in, in leading and loving our wives and salvation and sanctification out of this issue is a greatly loving to them. We're on our, on our knees in secret prayer for them, begging God to do what we cannot when we see tendencies of the modern woman in her. Uh, we implore the one who can make a change, the parable there, the, the, the story at Luke 8, uh, Luke 11, excuse me, where... This guy comes to his buddy at midnight in a day before streetlights and, you know, 24-hour Taco Bell and starts banging on the door and says, I need bread. And he's just banging over and over and over again. He says the guy won't open the door because he's his friend, but he will open the door because he's banging so much. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking on behalf of our, of our dear, precious wives who we're blessed to have. Pray, pray, pray. God might answer the prayer in a week to grant her repentance from being the modern woman, or it might be three or four decades or never. But we have faith and continue in prayer. Second consideration for shepherding a rebellious wife, um, he may need to revisit God's roles for husbands. Uh, he may need to revisit his role as a husband. Again, a leader, learner, lover. Uh, if he is not fulfilling his role, this does not give her a permission slip to live out the Genesis 3.16, right? She has to win him over without a word, First Peter 3, 1 to 2. Nevertheless, at times, uh, it can be provoking if a husband is wanting her to lead. That can provoke her. Well, you make all the decisions, honey. You're the boss. Because if mama ain't happy, no one's happy. No, that, that's sin. That's sin. And it can, and it can incite her. It'd be unnecessarily, uh, cause an unnecessary temptation. You know, if he's constantly asking her permission and treating her like she's the leader, that, that can provoke her. Uh, interestingly, it'll backfire. Um, humility behooves the husband to examine if there's an area needing repentance as it concerns his roles in the home. Maybe he's not living with her in an understanding way. Um, bad attitudes around her, dumping all our complaining on her. She's not meant to carry all that. Uh, failing to communicate with her. Uh, poorly handling and leading in, the, in financials, finances as a husband. 
that can tempt her. Um, being demanding with sexual intimacy, demanding sexual intimacy at poor times when she's sick or has had a brutal day with the kids, that can, that can be a temptation for her. Live with their wives in an understanding way. Um, not prioritizing time with her, connecting with her, date nights, not prioritizing that. Not leading spiritually, not leading by plaguing into church, not leading by reading scripture in the home. These things never excusing the tendencies of the modern woman, but can be temptations. A poor example, as uh, Ricky said earlier, can bring a temptation. Third, another consideration to remember, living with a rebellious wife is a form of suffering. Uh, men need to embrace that. That is, you're suffering. Right? Being married to the Proverbs 21 woman is a trial. And, and God brings suffering into our lives, sometimes for reasons we can understand, sometimes we can't. Why, did, why has God given me a, a rebellious wife like this? I don't know, but God is good and it's a form of suffering. The Proverbs 21 woman, 21.9, it's better to live in a corner of a roof than a house shared with a contentious woman. 21.19, it's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. So living in the corner of a roof in that you know, this is, this, this is like 9th century B.C. Israel. Um, that's a form of suffering. The roofs were flat, right? He's not saying living up like in the attic. I got my little man cave there. No, on the top where you're exposed or the desert land. You're exposed to all sorts of wretched circumstances, scorching Mideast heat, you know, and a day before SPF 50, blistering heat, the elements, sunburns, Rain, and if you're in the desert, scorpions and wild beasts, no food and water, wind. Solomon's saying it's better to be suffering with that than with the modern woman in your house, the rebellious woman. Therefore, to live with a contentious or vexing woman is a form of suffering. And if you're a brother who has that, you're suffering. This is suffering. It's a trial. And God has entrusted you. He's seen fit to entrust, as he often does with his uh, his choice servants suffering. And so in that sense, a husband will need to apply God's wisdom on suffering. You guys know, know just a couple things here. God is sovereign over it. He's not asleep. Ecclesiastes 7.13. God uses suffering for a good. Romans 8.28. Suffering isn't permanent, thankfully. Revelation 21. Suffering seasons us better to minister to other brothers. You'll be used to come alongside other brothers. Um, and some of you some of you brothers might be thinking, well, my wife isn't like that at all. She's not combative. She's so godly. She loves, submits, and respects me. Praise God. But it's still helpful to learn about these things so that you can come alongside other brothers. Because I tell you, this is very, very common in marriages. Marriage is the number one issue of counseling, the most popular. And this is usually what's happening. And the guy as well, as we... we Oh, what are we talking about the guys? We're just throwing the women under the bus? No, we talked about the guys two weeks ago. Okay, but in this hard feminist push, we need to take a slower look at this. And in, and in a sense, be advocates for men. The, the, the Reformed Church is to be an, a place of advocating for men, not excusing sin, but advocating for them in light of the times. Sons of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Suffering produces spiritual endurance. 
It matures us towards greater dependence on the Lord. So we can thank God for that. Speaking of which, uh, letter four there, God uses a rebellious wife for the good of our sanctification. Um, Martin Luther said marriage is a school of character. Um, so we can trust God that through, as, the, as my wife manifests the curse, that I, I'm, being, I'm, I'm learning all the fruits of the Spirit and growing in them to be patient, to be loving, to be gentle, forbearing, endurance. Fifth, a rebellious husband, a very rebellious wife, means a husband will have to practice the sacred discipline of waiting on the Lord. We, and you can see we did a study about a year ago on, on the, the leader and waiting on the Lord. You can get that message if you weren't able to be there uh, called a brief survey on waiting on the Lord. He waits for God to bring either salvation or sanctification in the wife of his dear, though the life of his dear wife. Psalm 62, my soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation, or the Hebrew word has the idea of deliverance. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Psalm 27, 14, the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And so he's steady. Right? We have to be steady in these difficult circumstances. That, that's the case for any kind of leadership. He walks with his good sovereign father as he waits on God. Six, the husband uh, with a rebellious wife will need to shepherd her. He'll need to shepherd her. And this is difficult. Uh, requires great grace, but he must shepherd her. He must not fear her. He must not allow her bad attitude to run the home. That is not loving her. If there are kids in the home, it's not loving the kids, and it's not leading. Uh, we talked last week about stuff like sexual and emotional manipulation that can happen. He, he's not allowed to say nothing. He can't, you know, he can't force her. But he needs to step in and shepherd her. Um, so far from an intrusion uh, or accusations of, you know, this is misogynist garbage, we, we, we repudiate that. That's satanic. This is loving her because helping someone with sanctification is loving. It's loving. Um, to present his bride with no spot or wrinkle by the grace of God. So a husband must not stand by and passively, you know, allow this to happen. This is sin against God her fa uh, and the family. It's rebellion against the rules and peace God has commanded from home. Hinders her relationship with the Lord, kids if she has them, and others. Because spirituality can't be compartmentalized. If she's a rebellious modern woman in the home, this certainly is affecting her life elsewhere in the body of Christ. And so it's a loving thing for her husband to to not tolerate this and to step in. Um, Christ commands believers to come alongside one another uh, when one is in sin. And this is just different than the world. We have to like de-world. You know, oh, that's unloving. That's controlling to say something. No, it's not. The Bible calls it love. Repent of that fleshly attitude. Matthew 18, 15, our blessed Lord said, if your brother sins or sister, who your wife is, um, go and show him his fault in private. You know, we don't, we don't gossip about her to our, to our guy friends. That's sin against her. We might get advice, but we're not like, oh, man, the old lady is this and that. We don't do that. That's, that's not honoring to her. Uh, it's loving also to come alongside her. Proverbs 27.5, better, <laughs> better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Hebrews 3.12-14. This is one of the most ignored verses in, in Scripture today. Take care, brothers, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage, the Greek word means exhort one another every day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance from until the end. So one of the ways we not be hardened and continue in the faith is, is people coming alongside of us. So that's scripture to substantiate the idea that if there's unrepentant sin in the home, a brother needs to come alongside his wife and confront her. Okay. Well, you don't know. She'll respond. She won't like that. Right. I mean, that's part of leadership is doing the right thing regardless of results, but have faith in God. Um, though a rebellious wife may reject the idea. God has designated the husband as a leader and authority in the marriage. She's to submit to and obey him as long as he's not requiring sin. So it's a both a failure to love and a failure to lead when we will not bring biblical correction to those in sin, including in our home. So a husband must not fear a rebellious wife. Doing so is forsake, to forsake leading her. And if we're fearing somebody, like scared of them, we can't love them at the same time. You know, I think I've told the goofy story. That's why I had a Dalmatian when I was a kid. And my buddy Mackenzie would come over and he was deathly afraid of the dog. The dog knew it. And so my dog would bite him. He would always bite Mackenzie. <laughs> he would not bite people who pet him. And, oh, hey, good to see you, Spot. His name was Spot. We got him from the pound. We tried to change his name and he wasn't feeling it. My name's Spot and you ain't changing it. <laughs> but just a silly illustration to show that we can't be scared of someone and love them at the same time, much less our wives. Right? Um, so just thoughts on shepherding a rebellious wife. Like, what does that look like? Obviously, gentleness. Gentleness, Proverbs 15.1. And, you know, we don't come in there and, yeah, and shaking our finger and none of that. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So gentleness. Greek word for gentleness means power under control. Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Some people think gentleness is never saying they're sinning or never saying they're wrong or never correcting them. No, that's sin. Gentleness is, at times, saying hard things in a spirit of, look, I, I should be in hell for my sins. I am no better than anybody. And with graciousness and a tenderness. Unruliness requires admonishment. If our wife is being unruly, First Thess 5.14 says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Faithfulness is our goal, as we have to rebuke and correct a rebellious wife, meaning, okay, God, th this might not end up well, but I have to say this to be faithful to you. I pray for good results. If it's not, that's your department. Our department is faithfulness. Results are God's department. 1 Corinthians 4.2, it's required of Servants, that they be faithful. If she's sinning in the moment, a husband may lovingly tell her things like, just a few examples, you know, you guys can think of others. And to be real transparent, my wife and I have discussed these things and have implemented them um, as we've struggled in our short 20 and a half years of marriage. Um, we've had to wrestle through this as, I, as I've, I've failed in every single one of these areas. 
And my wife would tell you she's failed in every single one of these areas too. And so we, these things, we've, we've had to test these. Yeah, this isn't theory. He may say things like, again, just examples. Honey, I care for you in our marriage. We need to grow in honoring God together. This will bring more joy to the marriage. But I'm not going to talk with you about this, whatever the issue is, when you are being disrespectful like this, when you're sinning against the Lord, when you're continuing to, to pressure me to get your way. We're not, we're, we're not, we're done talking about it. Um, also, just again, these are just suggestions, not a formula. You know, saying things, saying things that take it off of you and put it more on God. Not, you know, how dare you speak to me that way and treat me that way. We don't want to make ourselves the center in these heated seasons. Make God. Make it about God. You know, honey, we can make a time where we can sit down. I can hear you out in a godly way when we're in the spirit. Then we can pray. I can seek some counsel. Um, we can make a wise decision. Please pray for me. It's not honoring to the Lord for us to discuss this in a sinful way. I want to live with you in an understanding way. So let's address, we're going to address this another time when we are displaying the fruit of the spirit. When, when the heat is cooled off a little bit so that we don't continue to sin against God. This is about God and sin against each other. It's not going to solve things. So we're going to step away. And honey, God says, God, not me. God says, you're to respect your husband. You know, again, best in, in my imperfect experience, better to say that than, you know, you need to respect me. That, that puts you at the center and, and it's about obeying God. At times, there can be unpleasant responses in these moments. But a leader is not one who just lets sin go rampant and just sits by passively, patting himself on the back, saying, well, I'm just being patient. No, that, that's, there, there, there are commands that God has given in those situations. Patience means, I understand I can't force sanctification, and so I pray and give her time, and I still love her as it takes time to change and embrace her role. I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to love her and love her and lead her and love and love and love and love and love. That's patience, but I'm not going to forsake other scriptures which God has given us for these contentious circumstances. God has given plenty of them. That's the difference between patience and compromise. At times, there may be wrath to endure. Sometimes people don't want, and your wife doesn't want to hear that, you know. But that's not out of the ordinary. And God has given us, what do I do if, if wrath is incited? Thankfully, our, our loving God has given us verses on how to handle if wrath comes up. Two of them are, in, two of them are put there, Ecclesiastes 10.4. Uh, this is, of course, by way of application with a, a, a different political situation, but the principle applies. If the ruler's temper rises against you, don't abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. Staying calm, loving, gentle, not responding in kind, that can kind of cool off things. And of course, Proverbs 15.1, which I would commend to your memorization, a gentle answer turns away wrath. That means wrath is coming, a gentle answer turns it away, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We don't want to respond in kind, but neither do we want to be silent. 
A husband can't force his wife to obey God's commands. It might be helpful to discuss with her how the husband will respond and attempt to biblically shepherd her rebelliousness during a time in which you're not in conflict. I found that helpful. Uh, that when we're not in conflict, maybe on a date night, things are mellow. We're talking about, okay, when this, when the, when the temperature gets turned up, what's a helpful, like what, what, what do you think would be a helpful way for us to do this and me to lead in these situations? And you can agree on something. Um, in other words, honey, you know, I think that obviously there are times when we have conflict. I, I want, I want to honor the Lord. I think it would honor the Lord and, and, and how to approach that in a biblical way when we're not having conflict, have some sort of game plan. Um, and, you know, a lot of different examples of this. There may be times when it's necessary to involve others in the local church for additional shepherding. That's nothing out of the ordinary. A failure to do so could unnecessarily propagate sin in the marriage, cause further fallout with the onlooking children, prolong sorrow in the family, hinder discipleship opportunities, and be a poor witness of the gospel. Again, spirituality cannot stay compartmentalized. If she's doing this in the home, that's who she really is. And that's going to leak out in destructive ways in the body of Christ and elsewhere. Also, the things that are done, a husband may discuss outside of conflict, the option of involving a godly woman. This is really helpful at times. A godly woman in the church, godly enough to not let her slander her husband for accountability. For example, when she's tempted to sin against her husband, she can ask another sister in Christ, hey, can I, can I text you? Can, I, can you pray for me? Can, you, can I just chat with you in this moment? Stuff like that. Real helpful. Just, again, practical stuff. Um, additional steps of church discipline may be necessary. Why? Because God says so. And, and, you know, Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Um, and this is something he said. Um, if after patience, you know, we don't just, oh, I'm going to discipline you. You know, I'm going to get the elders involved if you don't. You know, that's not the way. But after much patience and prayer and humility and coming alongside her and more patience, and if, she's, if, a, if a rebellious woman is unwilling to repent, it's, it's necessary to obey the Lord by proceeding to subsequent steps of church discipline. These are the means of grace that God has given to handle sin. So this isn't anything that's out of the ordinary or outrageous. It's godly, it's loving, it's helpful. Um, we had a, uh, I had a gal... Wife and I, a good friend, couple. Um, he he was uh, he's an instructor at the uh, the LAPD training training center down in uh, in Los Angeles, and his wife was rebelling in some areas, and he would talk to her, and she was like, whatever, you know, you do this, you do that, blah blah blah. It's like, okay, yeah, you're right, you know, I do sin. And after several months, it came to the point where it's like, well, we're gonna bring we're gonna bring one or two more in because that's what the Bible says to do. And she was like, oh, my goodness. Matthew 18, 16 says, bring one or two more in. And that's when the Holy Spirit lovingly hit her. And she saw the seriousness of her disrespectful nature and disobedient attitudes towards her husband. And she repented. And it was a beautiful thing. These are the means of grace. And this is the process which God has commanded for situations involving an unrepentant believer. Professing believer. Um, a couple more things. We don't have time to get into all of it. Seventh, for a rebellious wife, the husband must guard his heart against bitterness. 
a great temptation for a guy to grow bitter here. Um, but that's it's not okay. Um, he needs to set his set his his focus on Christ. Thinking about you know, for me, it's helpful to think about how Christ, how much bitterness he could have incurred. You know how much he's sinned against. He's perfect. He is upholding everybody's breath, heart, lungs, life, making sure they get a paycheck, making sure they're fed. And our Lord never came out and said, don't you understand what I do for you every day? How could you? How dare you? He never said things like that. He didn't sin in bitterness. Isn't that amazing? Our Lord never sinned in bitterness. That is incredible. And if anyone maybe had a right to, it'd be him, right? But instead it says, 1 Peter 2, 20, the Lord, the example, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what's right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Guard against bitterness also. Number eight, and we'll just 30 seconds here, gentlemen. Um, the husband with a rebellious wife needs to guard his heart against covetousness. This is a real issue with some guys. In other words, I wish my wife was like so-and-so's wife. You know, the grass is greener on the other side syndrome. And we ought never to say to our wives, why can't you be like, insert another wife's name. That is just so unhelpful. The husband with a rebellious wife, number nine, should seek counsel from other brothers while refraining from slandering her. Number 10, the husband with a rebellious wife can practice thankfulness for her. There's something to be thankful for her. If she's not Satan, and she's not, there, you write down, you can journal, I'm thankful for this, and tell her. Number 11, the husband with a rebellious wife can deepen his relationship with the Lord for strength. Increase your quiet time. If you have a rebellious wife, instead of an hour of quiet time, do an hour and a half. Dig into theology, scripture, prayer. Just 11 suggestions, thoughts for shepherding a rebellious wife. And all of this, brothers, we're reminded that God is sovereign. Uh, we can't control people. We obey God and leave the rest to him. Um, we're weak and needy. These situations remind us how weak we are. That's part of the point. And we're freshly driven to the cross freshly driven to the cross to receive grace and forgiveness and strength from our blessed Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is helpful. Your word is sufficient. Uh, Lord, we understand that in, in those of us who are married in marriage that uh, we have so much growing to do as men. We're dependent on you. We can't change people. But, Father, help us to be faithful in the commands we've looked at. Help us to lead, to love, to, to learn. I pray for all the wives in here to be faithful, to love their husbands, submit to them, and grow in respect for them so that the, 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 Trinity, the Trinitarian design would be honored, the gospel would be modeled, albeit imperfectly. There'd be peace in the home and just delight. Father, your ways are so good. You only command that which will bring blessing. Thank you for that. Even when certain commands are scary and intimidating, we understand you're out for our good. So for these brothers, would you do them good? Would you strengthen them? Give them extra grace, extra, extra grace this week 
and all they're doing, singleness, marriage, parenting, whatever it might be in work until we meet to worship you corporately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, gentlemen. Grateful for you. Praying for you guys.